Hello, and welcome back to the Pep Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and on this episode, I spoke with the University of York's own Annette Zimmerman. It was her second time on the show, and in this episode, we talked about the ethics of AI, which Annette has been researching since 2016. After doing my own research for this episode and then speaking with Annette, it became clear to me, and I think it will be clear to those listening as well, that the narrative around AI in our media and politics routinely misses the big questions. But I won't spoil too much now, so enjoy the episode, and I'll see you in the next one. All right, so we're gonna, we can sort of jump right into it here. Annette Zimmerman, thank you very much for coming back on the show for a little discussion about uh, sort of the ethics of AI and some, some, some questions that are going to be sort of pertinent to political dialogue today and sort of philosophical questions. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mark. So if we could start with uh, the difference sort of between strong AI and, and weak AI and what uh, philosophical and ethical questions and problems AI in general sort of puts forward that, that need to be answered and researched. So when people think about AI, they typically have a certain image in mind, and that image is often heavily informed by sci-fi movies, sci-fi books. Uh, we typically think of an autonomous system that is fully conscious, you know, uh, much more like human agents uh, than what we currently have in terms of emerging technologies. We typically envisage sophisticated forms of AI as something really dangerous. Often it's embodied in, you know, the form of a an autonomous robot or something like that. Um, and so that often conjures up this really scary doomsday vision of AI. Now, that's not our current reality. Our current reality is we have fairly sophisticated forms of machine learning, but those forms of machine learning are obviously task specific. They don't generalize across all sorts of different domains, much like a human learner would, right? So if a human learns a new task, they can easily generalize from their existing knowledge and evidence and learn a whole bunch of new things. Our machine learning systems can't really do that. So what we currently have is something that we call weak or narrow AI. And we just call it that because it's so task specific. So we have to tell the system beforehand, here's a decision problem, and this is how you're going to solve it by using this particular type of data, by using these particular types of decision rules. And that suggests a very different kind of picture about what AI really is. Right? So an algorithm is a pretty straightforward thing. An algorithm is just a precise list of precise instructions. So your um, you know, narrow AI system carries out those instructions. Uh, often there will be some surprises, right? There might be some unanticipated results, but that's usually a result of bad design, right? We as human developers have overlooked something. It's not like our current existing forms of AI suddenly start doing things that we can't possibly control or anticipate. So we're, we're quite a long way from these, these real doomsday visions of AI where we have these fully autonomous artificial agents. Now, that's not to, to suggest that we're not potentially moving in that direction. Recently, in recent months, we've seen some fairly new forms of AI that seem to inch a little bit closer towards uh, artificial general intelligence, so the hyper-sophisticated, hyper-autonomous forms of AI. 
Um, one good example of that are uh, large language models, something like OpenAI's program GPT-3. Uh, that was a really fascinating um, tool because uh, it was one of the first tools that was really able to learn and generalize with no training. So computer scientists call that kind of system a zero-shot learner. What that means is you don't have to tell the system what to do. You don't have to prompt it in a lot of ways. So that seems to be a system then that isn't so specific to a given task, uh, much like all other forms of narrow or weak AI that we currently have. So what the system was able to do then was uh, generate huge amounts of uh, you know, original, so almost maybe even creative text um, just by being prompted with maybe two sentences. So you could tell GPT-3, please write sheet music in the style of Mozart, or please write a philosophical essay on you know, the problem of consciousness and artificial agents, and it would spew out an essay, you know, three pages of moderately coherent philosophical prose. Yeah, would it be any good? <laughs> well, interesting. So the tech community responded to this tool by saying, this is surprisingly good. It's actually shockingly good at some tasks, but it's often not convincing. It's not human-like. So very often, it'll just put things in a way that seem eerie or that seem slightly odd to you know, a human reader. So very often, we can still spot that this is you know, AI-generated text. Still, though, conceptually thinking, it's an interesting case study because... As soon as you have this generalization of learning across different tasks, it just raises the question, well, are we slowly moving away from narrow AI? Yeah, it's bound to get better, isn't it? It's bound to get better in some ways, but just a quick caveat here. I don't want to present GPT-3 as, you know, a really good tool necessarily. Uh, There were quite a few big problems with this kind of tool that we're going to get into later, I'm sure. Um, So the claim that we're moving towards artificial general intelligence in a small way might be good in some sense, in the sense that we're making a huge technological improvement or we're gaining new knowledge, but it might raise some tricky ethical and political problems that shouldn't be overlooked. Well, what seems now, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, what seems to be causing these kind of political problems and sort of questions of justice that we'll get into now is uh, is weak AI and uh, that sort of distinction of those specific algorithms that are be- being used quite a bit uh, today and now. And uh, if I could just ask, where where do you see weak AI manifesting in our sort of political and social institutions today and what kind of problems is it causing uh, from that sort of epistemic injustice question? Right, yeah, many people don't realize that we're actually already using weak AI everywhere in society. We're using AI to predict criminal recidivism risk rates Um, So judges are informed by algorithmic scores that are given to uh, various defendants. And so these scores tell the judge how likely it is that a particular criminal offender will re-offend again in a given time span. 
uh, we're also using AI in education. In the UK, we had a big controversy last summer because the UK government decided that instead of doing uh, actual A-level exams during the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, uh, we would just use a fairly crude algorithmic system to predict these final grades. Uh, this was immensely controversial because as it transpired, that algorithm was badly designed and it ended up disadvantaging uh, students from working class backgrounds and also from communities of color in the UK. Um, we have other examples too. Many uh, healthcare applications of narrow AI exhibit similar forms of biases. Uh, the criminal justice application that I just mentioned has been demonstrated to fail very differently for black and white defendants and obviously it disadvantages black defendants vis-a-vis -vis their white uh, counterparts. And so in all of these different domains, we see that social injustices, as they just exist without technology, get replicated by the use of technology. And it's interesting to kind of think about why that is, right? So there's multiple possible explanations. One explanation could just be, well, people who design this technology just are really biased. Right? They might not be explicitly biased, but they might be just tainted by an unjust society that they were socialized in. And so maybe they're coming up with really bad rules. Another possible explanation is, well, the data that we have is really tarnished by historical injustice. And so as soon as we're making predictions, as all machine learning systems do, from historical data in order to make inferential predictions and inferential classifications in order to make decisions about the future, we're just going to replicate those historical injustices. So it could be a data problem. Finally, it could be a problem at the level of the model that we're constructing, right? So we might have fairly good data, we might have fairly unbiased developer teams, but something might be going on in our model. Perhaps the model is just really opaque and it's really hard to check you know, if any mistakes are happening there. Um, or the model could distort social reality in a way that leads to unjust outcomes. Um, and so arguably, all of these three explanations are partially right in a lot of cases. It's a complex problem. Many things can go wrong when we design an AI system. So at the very first instance, even when we just define our original decision problem, that's when problems can already uh, start creeping in, right? So if we decide we would like to solve the problem of allocating final grades to all UK high school students by making a prediction uh, from the last two years of their academic performance and also based on the historical performance of their school, which you know we should know is kind of affected by structures mm -hmm. of inequality and injustice. If we make the judgment that that's the kind of problem that we should solve when we use AI, then we've already made a decision that is not necessarily morally or politically neutral, right? We could solve yeah. a different type of problem instead. We could say instead, you know, uh, we're going to predict something else or we're going to use different data to predict this thing that we want to predict. Or we might even choose to not use AI at all, you know, in the uh, specific UK example, uh, an alternative model would have been to just use teachers' predictions uh, and to not use um, an algorithm for this purpose. So whenever we make this initial judgment call, we have to be really cautious to 
make salient what sorts of assumptions we're making, right? And like what types of assumptions might be morally and politically biased some way, at least up neutral. Uh, but that's not the only thing uh, where, you know, things can go fairly wrong. Uh, even later in the design process, we face a lot of technological and ethical challenges. So think, for instance, about measurement, right? Like as soon as we try to design a machine learning model, we decide what type of data we want to work with, but then we have to measure the kinds of concepts that we want to represent in our model um, in order to then generalize from that model and make future predictions. And look at the kinds of things that we're trying to measure here, right? So we might measure something like crime rates, right? Like mm -hmm. let's say we're trying to develop a predictive policing system. It seems fairly straightforward, but actually measuring crime is pretty difficult given that we only have a proxy for crime rates. We have something like arrest rates, right? Now, ideally, arrest rates would be a good proxy for crime rates, but unfortunately, we don't live in an ideal world. Depends who gets arrested, yeah. Exactly. So very often, police will arrest people that actually haven't committed a crime, but also some people who have committed crimes will slip through the cracks and they won't get arrested. So that, that's a kind of general conceptual problem for measurement. But in our specific non-ideal world, obviously there's also an injustice problem layered over that proxy problem, mm -hmm. right? Because we know that there are racial and gender disparities in terms of who gets policed and in what ways. And so that's gonna really affect our data set. It's gonna really uh, affect the reliability of the kind of training data that we use to build up a model. And so that's a challenge that you know, we can try to mitigate technologically, uh, but we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that we're suddenly working with this inherently neutral, inherently mm -hmm. objective system, especially because as soon as we deploy a system in the world, right? like let's say we've gone through all of the motions, we've designed our initial uh, decision problem in you know, an okay way, we've tried to measure things fairly accurately, we've tried to de-bias our algorithm, but then we deploy it in the world and, you know, it doesn't operate in a vacuum. So the world responds to the fact that we've now used this predictive mechanism. And so individuals might behave differently, given that they know that the system is in place. So there's going to be really complicated feedback effects back into our algorithmic loop. And so that's really hard to predict from the level of designing mm -hmm. algorithmic tools. So we're never really quite done with thinking through the ways in which our model and the social world might interact. We always kind of have to monitor and try to account for it, these feedback effects in order to develop systems that are, you know, getting even an inch closer to something like a fair algorithm. Yeah, very interesting, especially as a student, that question of, of A-level predictions just Thinking through that, it seems like that kind of predictive model from weak AI, uh, I mean, the point of it, or maybe not the maybe not the point of it, but in effect, it, it is a replacement for the agency of the student to, to study and prepare beforehand. And it seems like, just to me, how, how do you even begin to, to justify uh, the replacement of 
individual sort of agency and control over your your grades through through effort and education and your teachers with some any kind of AI system, any kind of algorithm. It doesn't even seem to me like that could get close to to being fair. Right. I think you're totally right about that. I was really irked by this particular case. Uh, as an educator, I thought it was really concerning that suddenly this opportunity was taken away from students to actually go through this process of preparing for this really monumental um, you know, milestone in someone's life and to really study for it and to kind of prove yourself in that context. So I think that's one really big problem that it takes away agency from students. Um, Another problem, though, again, was this massive disparity. So literally seeing cases where a student would have normally gotten a B based on teachers' predictions, but they just straight up failed by the lights of this algorithmic system, uh, seeing how schools that were from disadvantaged communities did very, very badly purely because they were in a given area. And so all students in those schools were being disadvantaged through no fault of their own. So I think there are just so many different ethical and political issues associated with this uh, solution that, you know, I think it's no surprise that we're not doing this again this year. <laughs> um, but it, it's really uh, remarkable that this was okayed in the first place and that, you know, people were being put through this even mm -hmm. once. Yeah, that um, seems I also incredible. found it interesting that uh, people were really demonstrating against this. So as, as a scholar working on these topics, and especially as a political philosopher, I was always kind of wondering, you know, when are we going to see the first um, demonstration in the streets against algorithmic injustice? And I actually think this is a really good example. So many students were, you know, in the streets and they had signs with them saying things like, uh, you know, algorithms are never neutral. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly the problem. Well, companies, companies like IBM, who are obviously very, have a vested interest in, in pushing these kind of algorithmic data systems, have said that through optimization, through the use of better data and seeing the 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 fruits of weak AI um, and its negatives, only the sort of positive good systems um, will remain through sort of conversations like like we're having and 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 the pointing out of of injustice. Uh, do you see that as as what will eventually happen with weak AI? Only the good systems will be left in place and, and we can regulate through through markets, through government, the, the use of AI until we've we've kind of figured it out, the optimization problem and, and it's all sorted. Is that a possibility? So I think companies that endorse that line make an additional implicit assumption. Uh, and that implicit assumption is that good technology, so socially beneficial technology, will also be the most profitable technology. Now, that might be true in some cases, right? So it might very well be true that the company that develops the most socially beneficial tool, um, you know, 
is able to attract a lot of funding, is able to sell that product to a lot of you know, public sector agencies, um, that company's stock is going to go up and so on and so on. But it's not obviously true for all cases that whatever is the most fair or the most equitable tool will also be the most profitable. And I think looking at other industries actually, uh, and looking at historical developments of previously new and disruptive technologies, we should take this line of argument with quite a bit of caution. So we've seen evidence of other forms of technology that have actually had a really detrimental social or environmental impact, but they were hugely profitable and drove entire industries. And so they were around for a really long time. So I don't think it's obviously true that only the good technologies will prevail. I think actually what's needed is quite serious regulatory intervention in a lot of cases. Um, what's needed is also quite a bit more democratic deliberation around mm -hmm. the purpose of these tools. So unfortunately, currently, while we do have one-off controversies that galvanize a lot of public momentum, like the Ofqual A-level algorithms controversy mm -hmm. in the UK, uh, it's not a, a kind of across-the-board public awareness. And it's very hard to figure out as an ordinary citizen, I think, how, how can I participate in public discourse on these issues? Because very often it's not like, you know, some AI issue is like on the ballot or some party explicitly, you know, has a full slate of AI policies that they're really committed to. So I hope that more and more we're actually going to see that where ordinary citizens can deliberate quite directly about these questions around should we use AI in this area in the first place or like what, what, what do we want emerging technologies to do for us? What are some of the risks and dangers that we want to prevent here? And so given that there are often multiple possible views, right, like multiple possible political commitments that might give us very different answers, I think it's really crucial that we kind of step away from this AI exceptionalism that is currently going mm -hmm. on where people kind of view AI as this specialist domain that just requires highly sophisticated technological and mathematical knowledge. Um, so I think people need to realize and predominantly politicians need to realize that we don't all need to become computer scientists to ask these deeper value-driven and purpose-driven questions about where we want to use AI in society and what kinds of outcomes we might want to encourage vis-a-vis uh, -vis preventing them. And so uh, I think it's often one thing to say, you know, yeah. people lack knowledge about this. Um, it's yet another... Leave it to the scientists, ask, yeah. Right, well, we, it's like we, another we thing to ask, well, how do we get society there? Right, right. So it's another kind of mm -hmm. question for us, well, how can we get ordinary citizens to actually acquire the skills to really deliberate about this question in a productive way? What just generally, what do you think of something like something like Facebook? And I don't want to add anything onto there. So, so something like Facebook with the the algorithms that it uses. What what are your thoughts around them as an organization and their significance within sort of political discourse? Right. I think that relates 
nicely to the question that you just asked me before, because obviously Facebook has been driven by the motto, move fast and break things. And so that's a really common attitude in the tech industry now, but arguably it wasn't necessarily always the case that speed was prioritized over Mm -hmm. everything else. So Facebook really encouraged this mentality in the industry that speed comes before any other metric that we might want to optimize for. Um, And obviously many startups have taken on a similar ethos. Nowadays, you can't really sell your startup unless you prove that you've been able to disrupt the state of the art in a particular domain-specific problem. And you are able to do that at massive scale and with massive speed. And so often there is a kind of hubris attached to that because the the idea seems to be, you know, if we're the fastest, uh, that's good because we clearly have good intentions. So it's better if we get there first before some other kind of bad actor or, you know, nefarious authoritarian government gets there. Uh, And, you know, I think we should be critical of the idea that tech developer teams are necessarily the ethical authority. Um, I also think we should question the idea that if you have good intentions, you will necessarily bring about good outcomes. Mm -hmm. Experience shows that that's just not often true. Um, And it's actually interesting. I mean, the, the tech industry, if you look at other mottos like uh, move fast and break things, um, you see a real reluctance to kind of grapple with this mismatch between good intentions and good outcomes, right? So I recently looked at the leadership principles at Amazon. One of the leadership principles literally is be right a lot. And, you know, the idea seems to be, well, you know, we just hire really smart people and that's going to enable us to make really good decisions all the time. Uh, And obviously, if you make bad decisions, we fire you or whatever. Um, it's just not as simple as that, right? So, you, you know, you might have really educated people, you might have really well-intentioned people, um, but you might still be putting out really risky technology that, you know, if used in the wrong decision domain could really just shape society potentially in an irreversible way, in a way that we cannot really take back quite easily. Um, so that's another reason to kind of be skeptical of this idea that, you know, speed is necessarily a good thing because if you do irreversible harm really quickly, you know, you haven't really won <laughs> by the lights of any uh, kind of ethical metric. Uh, so I think we, we should approach these kinds of ideas with caution. That's not to say that we should like stifle innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should definitely encourage innovation and research. Um, but I think we should be cautious with this idea that we necessarily need to deploy any new tool at a really large scale. Uh, Often it's much safer uh, to deploy new technology in a constrained way, right? So in the tech industry, people call that sandboxing, where we experiment and simulate specific social conditions, but we don't necessarily unleash a tool on everyone in society without having properly tested and regulated it. Uh, And so, so taking a slightly more cautious approach to innovation and experimentation will often be just much more ethically defensible. And it seems like Facebook hasn't taken any of that, any, any of that on board and for that have been in, in the, in the news for, 
causing political polarization with uh, all the issues around the 2016 election in the U.S. and such. And uh, to me, in my research before this, it seems like uh, the weak AI that Facebook uses in its algorithm to show you news and posts is already kind of framed to to learn around humans and treat you as a commodity and and put in front of you uh, whether it's political things or just comedy sketches, whatever it is, things that uh, confirm your your biases and preconceived notions. Uh, do you think that that is a fair analysis and what kind of effects do you think that that has on our political political dialogue, how we relate to each other? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, people in uh, the kind of interdisciplinary research community around machine learning and algorithmic decision making, people in that community like to often say something like, well, data is simply a social mirror. So data will simply replicate uh, whatever we feed um, our algorithmic system, right? So it's, it shows us who we are uh, in a very clear way, including all of our uh, preconceived notions and biases. And I mean, I agree with that in principle, but I just don't think it's put strongly enough in a lot of ways. So if you think about the Facebook case, what we see there is a process of amplification and not just mirroring. And that's what makes it really dangerous. So data is not really a social mirror, it's more like a social magnifying glass uh, that pushes us into artificially um, amplified, um, you know, either echo chambers or other categories that are not necessarily a reflection of the categories that we would be associated with uh, were we not interacting with these you know, algorithmic systems and these targeted ads. So I think there's definitely a distortion effect going on that goes beyond mere replication. And that's really important to recognize. Now, just because there's distortion, that doesn't mean we should excuse people who get, you know, radicalized by spending hours and hours online and just kind of going down a really extreme political rabbit hole. Uh, I think we all have personal responsibility to try to mm -hmm. counteract uh, these phenomena and to seek out um, more balanced news sources and, and to engage critically with the evidence or supposed evidence that we see online. Uh, Acknowledging at the same time, of course, that often that is quite difficult given the wealth of information that we're being bombarded with. But I think we can't just opt out entirely of that. So we shouldn't just say to people, well, you know, it's not your fault that you spread fake news to your circle of friends and family because you're clearly vulnerable to this algorithm. I think everyone just has to recognize that responsibility that we all have. Now, more importantly, though, we should turn our critical uh, lens to the responsibilities of corporations like mm -hmm. Facebook, right? So interestingly, Facebook has been recently spending this argument that, uh, you know, they're uh, in it uh, to support small businesses and, you know, ordinary users. Facebook will always be free. Uh, so they're kind of presenting their service as something that, of course, commodifies you. Uh, you are the product because their product is free. Um, now, 
that glosses over a number of important issues, right? Obviously, they're not in the social networking business anymore. They're in the targeted ads business. Um, and Data so that, collection, that, that's something yeah. that, that, that most Facebook users are still kind of unaware of, right? Um, recently, Facebook has come under quite a bit of scrutiny because um, Apple uh, introduced new privacy settings. Uh, and so enabling those enhanced privacy, uh, privacy protections would render it virtually impossible for Facebook to use um, personalized ads and to sell data that they're obtaining from various Facebook applications, also including WhatsApp and uh, other applications like that. And so there's been quite a bit of conflict <laughs> between these tech giants lately on this issue. And Facebook's defense has always been, well, you know, uh, Apple is this prestige product for the wealthy elites. You pay for privacy, but we're in it because we want to provide accessible social media uh, for everyone. Uh, we don't want to gatekeep that um, with you know, really elevated prices. Um, and so as soon as a company says that, I think we just have to be aware, well, they can afford to do that because they're gaining a lot of money by using this other data from their users. So nothing is free, really. Companies are currently making very different choices on how to monetize you know, their products and their services. But we shouldn't fool ourselves into thinking that you know, Facebook's current argument uh, is really rock solid here. Yeah, maybe Apple's ahead of the curve and they see a few years down the road, people are going to maybe say, hey, hold on. Let's let's I, I, I want to know where my data is going, how it's being used, and I want that sort of security. And that sort of brings up one question I wanted to ask you. Do you use a VPN? Yes, I do. Have you made the switch to Signal as well? Yes, <laughs> many years ago. <laughs> many years. That that is uh, I think that's everybody listening. That's your cue to uh, to make that swap to Signal. Do it. Signal. Yes. <laughs> get a VPN. I uh, I did both of those things a little bit ago, um, just because I got a uh, I got a free um, couple of years. If I I think it was thirty bucks for three years for a bunch of accounts for VPN. So I just got that service, gave some to my family, but now laptop, phone, good good old VPN services. And it uh, from from all this, it seems like the regulation that's occurring within the AI industry is from us as individuals and I guess companies like Apple that are upping their, their data security um, for people that buy their products. Uh, do you see any, any problems with government not stepping in and there being, whether it's through negligence, incompetence, lobbying, problems with stopping companies like Facebook from having this this, I mean, ultimate godlike power to know so much about billions of people. Yeah, I mean, in, in general, I think there's a huge problem with governments just not stepping in uh, on these issues. Um, I think actually, very often, we see a really unfortunate result of um, government intervention that is a little too late. And it usually follows the following dynamic. So look at, look at cases like the use of facial recognition and policing, which obviously has been really controversial. 
so facial recognition uh, systems, much like these other weak AI cases that we discussed before, have massive racial and gender bias. So these systems are just much, 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 much less accurate for women and people of color. And as you can imagine, if we're using these systems in law and immigration enforcement, that's particularly disturbing because law and immigration enforcement are functions that democratically authorized actors usually perform. Right? So we authorize our elected government to perform these functions under the presumption that if they mess up, we can hold them accountable. But now these public agencies are outsourcing these really key tasks to private sector agents and privately developed mm. technology, uh, much of which is not really open to public scrutiny because, of course, these private companies that provide these tools can often say, well, we have a legitimate business interest in keeping these, uh, these things as trade secrets. Um, so that raises kind of an immediate democratic accountability problem, even if the technology works reasonably well, which, of course, isn't the case here, right? But so even if it were to be quite an effective tool, uh, I think the mere fact that this public actor is now outsourcing to the private sector in quite an intransparent way, that's already kind of a worry. Now, because of all of these problems, facial recognition was really controversial in a lot of places, but not every place in which it was deployed actually made the same decisions about it. So for instance, San Francisco had a lot of tech activism and they actually decided to ban facial recognition in their police force uh, in 2019. A couple of other American cities did the same thing. Boston, Somerville, and so on. You know, they imposed local bans on facial recognition for the specific reason that it seemed to lead to massive racial disparities. And so you might then ask, okay, well, that's pretty good that some of these cities have kind of come to this conclusion. We should definitely improve this technology to make sure that, you know, it doesn't fail differently for different people. But what about all of the people who live in cities where, you know, police departments are just still using this technology? So you can live in the same country, but you can live in a really different reality, depending on where you happen to live. And as a political philosopher, I kind of think that's a really undemocratic way to live, right? So when it comes to interacting with public sector agents like the police force, we need to be able to have legitimate and reliable and consistent expectations of what they can and can't do. It shouldn't be a piecemeal kind of approach where we have this patchwork of local regulations all over the country um, and where people can experience really arbitrary differences in their mm -hmm. interactions with the state, depending on where they just happen to be. So I think that's a, that's a kind of indicator that actually regulation on this issue moved much too slowly, right? So federal regulation was under discussion uh, for the specific issue for quite a long time, but, you know, was never pushed through. So now we're in a status quo where our final hope is that there will be a kind of trickle up effect or bubble up effect where these local forms of regulation will ultimately lead to really consistent and reliable and serious regulation on a federal level. But of course, there are no guarantees. So it's often better to be quite a bit more proactive when it comes to 
assessing regulatory proposals. So <laughs> the opposite of uh, you know, moving fast and breaking things often currently occurs at the level of governance. <laughs> and so that's where a little bit more speed would have actually been helpful and would have greatly enhanced the rights and securities of individual citizens. Could even say that it's uh, moving slow and misunderstanding things just from, I read again uh, so, some of the questions that uh that Mark Zuckerberg was asked in 2018 uh, by senators. And it was things like, um, is Twitter the same as what you do? Or if I'm emailing within WhatsApp, does that inform your advertisers? Uh, just <laughs> uh, Senator Orrin Hatch was was uh, just made fun of for, for weeks because he asked, how do you sustain a business model in which users don't pay for your services? Yeah, I mean, these kinds of questions are really clear indicators that there is a real lack of expertise, um, both in terms of elected officials, but also actually just, uh, you know, um, the administrative state. Yeah, so they have staff. Who, <laughs> they, they have people yeah. that do that research for them. Yeah, right. But I think there's still there there's still a knowledge gap. Some of that is generational, of course, mm. um, but actually not all of it. I think at this point we can expect our democratically authorized, uh, you know, people and institutions to acquire that knowledge that is necessary to effectively regulate in this area. Um, these kinds of questions have revealed that that's currently not happening. So that explains why regulation has been slow moving here. Uh, one particularly ironic and to me somewhat annoying phenomenon now is that big tech has been publicly requesting to be regulated, right? So it's very easy for powerful tech corporations to now turn this issue around and to say, you know, we've exploited the lack of regulation until now. But please regulate us at this point. Oh, why are you not doing it? You know, like you're moving too slowly here. And so it's not our fault if uh, we then have products that lead to massive social problems. Um, I mean, every podcast that I've listened to over the past month has had a Facebook ad uh, saying uh, something to the effect of this podcast sponsored by Facebook current advocating for progressive tech regulation. Read more on, you know, our corporate information page on which type of regulation we would favor. Um, and it's all presented in this really cheery tone. So it's kind of like, we as a tech company want to be responsible, but we can't be responsible on our own. You have to literally tie our hands uh, so that we don't do something that's just really bad. Um, and so that seems a little disingenuous to me. Uh, the, the idea kind of is, well, unless you force us to do something ethical, we won't do it and we can't somehow do it. Um, that doesn't really bode well, <laughs> uh, especially given the fact that uh, Facebook and other big tech companies have all of these uh, AI ethics teams now uh, that supposedly are working towards ensuring that even in the absence of regulation, they don't put out products that could be really damaging. Um, so I think a lot of that discourse, unfortunately, is quite toothless and disingenuous, which makes it all the more important that we actually focus on tangible regulation in this area. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, hopefully we get there. Hopefully our elected officials kind of there. There's a 
there's a public sort of shift of of focus within our within our politics, and that generational gap uh, is is bridged and everything before. Uh, I mean, not it's it's easy to to say I don't know before it's too late, but what does too late look like? And we could uh, we could we could speak about what too late looks like in these last couple minutes here with the uh, kind of doomsday scenarios that uh, we mentioned towards the beginning. Some of the some of the Elon Musk, Bill Gates, uh, Stephen Hawking's type type worries, and uh, I mean questions like is it is it possible to build a self conscious AI that can teach itself? But I suppose that brings up the problem of, of, of consciousness. Uh, but what, what, are, what are your thoughts there? Is that a, a possible, feasible thing? Right. So it's very hard to predict um, whether true human-like consciousness is possible for artificial agents. Now, people raised this issue actually in relation to the tool that I mentioned before, the really powerful language model, GPT-3. So because some of the texts that GPT-3 produced, and because of the fact that it was able to simulate a conversation with users, um, a lot of people were wondering, well, oh, you know, some of these statements sound like this is a conscious system. Um, But many philosophers and computer scientists were quite quick to point out that this is really not coming anywhere near close machine consciousness or machine understanding. Um, Actually, one issue that I think really threw people off there was that some of GPT-3's generated text seemed creative. And I think a lot of people associate something innately human uh, with creativity, the ability to produce something that is maybe funny or just surprising or original in some way. Um, and actually what these new tools show us that it's quite easy to mimic creativity in some ways. Uh, we have a lot of AI art. Some of it is better than you know other pieces. <laughs> um, but it, it's possible to generate new visual content, new audio content, new textual content, a way that un, you know, reasonably mimic human capabilities. What's harder to do is to emulate critical reasoning mm-hmm. and logical scrutiny uh, as a skill. Yeah. So uh, some researchers did these experiments with GPT-3 to kind of trap it in logical conundrums or to try to like get it to spot mistakes that you would only spot if you had critical judgment faculties. And so that's something that's really missing. Right? So GPT-3, for instance, had a lot of, again, racial and gender biases, mm-hmm. and it just couldn't spot them uh, because it wasn't able to evaluate the social meaning attached to the use of particular linguistic categories. And so we as human decision makers can do that because we're able to critically scrutinize okay, well, what does it mean to use this kind of phrase Mm -hmm. in this kind of context? Um, And so I think that's really a hard limit. Now, obviously, some philosophers have been really interested in this question of, you know, but what if we do get there, right? Like, what if we do have conscious machines? uh, And what if they actually end up posing an existential risk to us as the human race? Um, Now, I think that's a really interesting and valuable kind of long-termist philosophical literature. But recently, 
more philosophical attention has been really diverted to this question of, well, what do we do here and now? Because we're grappling with these really urgent problems. So in my own research, I'm also much more focused on these immediate or near-term future scenarios. So the kinds of doomsday visions that I focus on are actually doomsday visions of this year or maybe mm -hmm. the next 10 years. And none of them necessarily include any form of sophisticated machine consciousness, but they do include really powerful actors um, under conditions of you know, immense concentrations of wealth and power in the tech industry, um, coupled with often just quite uncautious approaches to developing emerging technologies. Um, so I'm really worried more about this idea that human decision makers might say, let's just try it, you know, like, let's just see what happens. And like thereby kind of toying with human life in a lot of ways, right? Like innovation isn't mm -hmm. inherently innocent. I think just asking more of these questions of, well, why do we want to innovate in this area? Um, that's much more important. And if we fail to do, do that, I think that's an even more important existential risk uh, that we have to grapple with here and now. I also think that when we kind of think about like this related doomsday scenario of like, you know, maybe AI won't be an existential risk to us, like maybe it won't wipe out humanity, but maybe it'll just replace us. It's a, it's a kind of more limited version of this doomsday scenario. I think that doomsday scenario is also here in a lot of ways. So look at, look at things like ghost work, right? This is a, a very interesting phenomenon that we've seen essentially as a result of the gig economy. Um, so we have a lot of these really precarious workers in the tech industry that do really menial tasks. So like algorithmic content moderation requires human content moderators looking at a lot of disturbing images for really low pay for like hours and hours and hours. And so that, that's a really terrible job. Uh, there are similar jobs where basically you hire really low paid human workers to pretend that they are AI. And that's exactly what ghost work is. So researchers have found that a lot of startups will benefit financially from being able to pitch their product as, oh, we have this really great new AI and it's able to do all of these cool tasks, like schedule all of your um, you know, meetings and like automatically reply to all of your emails. One startup that, that recently is called XAI, and they come, came under immense scrutiny last year because it turned out that they had just hired a bunch of human workers to like pretend that they're robots and to manually type in all of these email re responses in order to make the company seem like they've already developed this tool. And so in this case, AI in a way has replaced the human workers, but the human workers are still, you know, doing still on the back end, yeah. and jobs, right? For really, really or under really, really terrible conditions, actually. So it's a different form of replacement that is going on here, right? Like one would hope that replacement would be kind of beneficial to humans so that, you know, we would have to work less and like, you know, maybe just be more prosperous and more safe as a society. Um, but that's not really happening right now for a lot of people. So I think that that particular idea of AI as a doomsday scenario is maybe happening 
already in a lot of ways that are not really visible to a lot of people. Yeah, not really talked about too much either. So if uh, so if the people listening want to sort of read more, hear more about these kind of issues or uh, or get involved beyond sort of getting a VPN, moving the signal, those kind of personal things, uh, what can they do? Where can they find sort of sort of resources? Right. Um, well, there is this one really uh, exciting book that just came out. Uh, it's called Redesigning AI. And it's actually an issue of the Boston Review, uh, a publication that I really, really love. They've been doing an amazing job at covering AI issues in relation to topics like democracy and justice and other kind of, you know, politically and ethically salient themes. Um, and so that issue of the Boston Review has a ton of different essays by really amazing leading figures in this interdisciplinary research field, talking about AI and work, talking about AI and power, um, the legitimacy of these big corporations, these kinds of purpose and justice related questions that I just raised. So if you want to get a sense of who really has some interesting ideas in this field right now and what are some contemporary perspectives on that. I think that's actually a great collection of essays uh, to start with. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, that just came out two weeks ago. So uh, you, you can access all of those essays either online or you can buy the issue. Um, and that's a good place so, to start there. Be able to read, right. You'll be able to read my essay, Stop Building Bad AI, there uh, if you want to. Uh, so I would definitely recommend that. I would also recommend the ongoing coverage of the MIT Technology Review. I think they have some of the best uh, tech journalists at the moment. They're doing really exciting reporting, um, including really interesting investigative reporting on different tech companies. Uh, so that's another kind of easily accessible uh, resource for people who just want to get into this topic. Very interesting. I've really, really liked this discussion. I've sort of had that interest in uh, in in AI and its sort of contemporary uses and the significance of that for a while. So thank you so much, uh, Annette Zimmerman, for coming on the podcast. I've uh, found it to be a great discussion. Thank you. Yeah, it was a fascinating conversation. Um, I think all of these issues are just so important and they're going to shape our reality for the foreseeable future. So it's really important to talk them through. Thank you yeah, for absolutely. having me. Thank you very much.